Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Support for E2 is brought to listeners in part by Iristel, offering better Canadian telecom solutions. With Iristel business solutions, companies can streamline communications to reduce complexity and give employees better resources. Visit iristel.com slash solutions for more info. That's I-R-I-S-T-E-L dot com slash solutions for more. And the Entrepreneurs Organization and a local chapter in Toronto, Canada. Are you a founder of a growing business? EO is the catalyst that enables entrepreneurs to learn and grow from each other. EO members are provided with a continuous cycle of peer-to-peer networking opportunities, monthly forum meetings, and world-class learning events. For more info on joining EO, visit eotoronto.ca and click apply. So today is my conversation with Dean Brower, co-founder and EVP of UK-based GoHenry. GoHenry is an innovative consumer internet and fintech business with a mission to help millions of kids be good with money. Early in the episode, we touch on the app, its features, the problem it addresses, and more. But more importantly, we get into some amazing discussion on GoHenry's emotional connection to the two most important things in many people's lives, of course, money and children. We also talk about how that's helped the company build and foster a connection with its community of customers and supporters, which in 2016 actually culminated with a world record equity crowdfunding raise of four million pounds. So with that intro out of the way, let's get to it. Hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Here is Dean Brower. Go Henry's been set up with like a really simple and clear mission, and it's just to help kids um, everywhere learn to be good with money, and we want to help millions of kids do that. How um, the product works is it's a debit card and an app designed specifically for kids age 6 to 18. Parents go to our website or download the app and sign up. It takes only a few minutes. Sign up and pick a card for their kids. And then the kids receive a debit card um, often branded with their own name on it. So instead of it saying Go Henry, it says Go Dean or Go Adam. And the child gets an app and the Parents get an app. There's a mobile app, iOS and Android, and an online account, like a norm, you know, like a normal bank account. And parents can link up to four children under their parents' account. 
So the way it works is the parent funds an account in a similar way that you would fund you know, Skype credit or a PayPal account. And they, use, they fund it using a debit card and add some money to their parent wallet. And then they decide how they want to give their kids their allowance and where the card could be used. So one of the unique things is the parental controls. They can set tasks and chores for their kids to earn extra money. They could give them a weekly allowance. So every Saturday, five bucks, 10 bucks goes on the kids' cards. Or they could just make a one-off transfer. So if the kids are you know, out and about in the city at the movie and need an extra 10 bucks to get home in a taxi or buy some extra popcorn, they can transfer money and it's available in real time. The parent and the child gets a notification every time the child spends money on the card. So the parent will get a notification which offers great peace of mind for them. And it says, you know, something like Adam has just spent four bucks at a&W Burger, and he now has uh, 10 bucks left to spend. And then the child also receives the same notification telling them where they've just spent and crucially how much they have left to spend. And then in the kids version of the app, they um, you know use all the budgeting tools available to them so they could set savings goals and watch their money grow. They could save for anything they like. They could save for you know an Xbox over Christmas their sibling's birthday. Um, they tell us what they want to save for, how much the item costs, or what the cash savings goal is, and then um, when they want to reach that goal, and we automate that to help them build a saving habit. Yeah, so really good overview. Um, you, you mentioned a lot of the key benefits and features, so the parental controls, the chores, the allowances, all those things. Do you still Is there still an issue with parents understanding how this product separates or is different from a standard prepaid card? Is there an educational piece that you need to convey? Yeah, I think yeah, I think there is. I mean, we see ourselves as a market creator. And when we're creating a market and a new category of, um, of product, there is definitely an education job to do. I think parents ultimately get it when they come across the, um, the service. I think more our challenge is about knowing something like GoHenry even exists. Kids, mm-hmm. you know, a parent doesn't really wake up every day and go into Google and search how how am I going to help my kids learn about money, and 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 be searching out a tool like GoHenry. But when they come across it and they see that it's an easy way for them to manage allowance, a fun way for them to manage allowance, um, and help their kids learn about money, they're obviously very attracted to that proposition. Um, and I think one of the things for us is that, you know, banks, banks aren't really playing to this segment of the market. They don't create products for this segment of the market and prepaid in certainly in, in the U S uh, and Canada has, has not gone after a teen segment. It's typically going after, um, you know, a community of people who are, either can't get a bank account or can't get credit cards. And this is, you know, prepaid is an alternative mechanism for, for them. For us, it is purely um, today you're going to be spending on a debit card. Tomorrow you might be 100% mobile. Um, and it's just a mechanism for kids to be able to participate in a cashless society and a digital economy. And crucially, what we do is make it smart and, you know, pair that card with an app so that, parents could get the oversight and peace of mind that um, most are looking for when they're introducing their kids to money as young as six years old. Why don't the banks get involved? Like, and what is 
their role in all of this? I mean, you'd have to ask them. From from my point of view, um, you know, the banks are offering a adult product to children. They just take a carbon copy of an adult bank account and they give it to a child. Many banks don't even give an online account, let alone a mobile app. Why they don't go after this this segment, I I, I don't know. I think they see financial literacy typically as a CSR brand exercise and are happy with fighting it out when you, you know, turn 18 and they want to start issuing your first credit card to you. So, okay. So let's rewind back to the beginning. So FinTech is in vogue now. It's a big industry. When you got started, I want to say circa 2011 or 2012, the space was obviously not what it is today. What were the circumstances around the launch for you guys? When we launched, uh, it was quite innovative. It was quite new. And I, you know, there was just an education job we had to do to build trust and credibility in the market as a new entrance. We were dealing with probably two of the most, most emotional things in a parent's life, their child and their money. And we put those two things together. And right from the start, we just took the approach that um, we would work really closely with our community to collaborate on everything we did, be a transparent brand, an open brand, make, make uh, the service very easy, accessible, and build it with the the best technology available and to make it as safe and secure as, as we possibly could. And we thought if we brought our community along with us and everything we did, they would, you know, um, help us build that trust and uh, credibility in the market. What were you doing before this that led you to this? What were the circumstances around how you and your partners, I guess, sketched out the, the business idea or the business strategy? So really, I think it was just really entrepreneurial in the sense that um, it was a product developed by a group of parents and friends who um, were trying to solve a problem for their own children. And what was happening at the time was their kids were using their credit cards to make purchases on iTunes, stream games at Steam, buy stuff on Amazon. And the feeling was a few things. One, well, how are children going to learn about money and are children going to learn about money in a digital and cashless world when it's, it's tangibly not passing through their hands right. to as a parent, how do I have any oversight and control over my kids using my own credit card? Three, how do I make sure my kids get some freedom and independence so they're spending their money and are making better choices? And we went out to, you know, the business was founded in, in the United Kingdom. And so we went out to the high street, as it were, to the retail banks and looked at what was on offer. And, and to our surprise, absolutely nothing existed. And we were very excited about that and pieced it together and launched the business. Um, so so um, I don't think there was a grand strategy, but we saw we just saw a huge void in the market and what we believed was a was a big market opportunity. So we all kind of quit our jobs and went went into it. So the first phase of the business, it's obviously young, you guys come together. Are you bootstrapping? How are you funding this out of the gate? Yeah, so we um, we've been very fortunate, and we've always been able to raise money um, through a network of um, angels, family offices, and and then in 2016 um, we actually went to the crowd to raise money. So in the very earliest days, you know, 
all of us put our own money in and then we got money from angels and high net worth. And then 2016, we did the crowdfund. Um, and obviously from day one, always focused on product market channel fit, you know, making sure we had a product that retain attracted customers and retained them and a value proposition that was really crisp and clear to the market and well understood. Obviously hard work at the beginning, we've worked away at it, found the market and uh, grown well. And I think that culminated nicely in 2016 with a big um, equity crowdfunding raise where um, we raised four million pounds and about a million pounds came from our own customer base, hmm. which was a real great moment for the company and really exciting. You know, we were all a bit skeptical about equity crowdfunding, you know, there's um, in the sense that. You know, the traditional route would have been we raised money, we put our own money in, we got money from an angels, few angels, we got it to certain milestones that made sense for some seed funding by an institution into series A, B, C. And for us, actually, we were, I think because the concept is so easy to understand and parents identify with it, therefore, um, a lot of angels and a lot of angels, who, obviously, who are parents, you know, really backed the company because they saw the need in, in their own family. And then by the time we got to the crowd, um, a lot of stuff was happening in the UK and Europe where, obviously, the the regulation loosened up and allowed platforms to open up to do equity crowdfunding. And all of a sudden, it it just dawned upon us that this was a really viable alternative to raising from an institution. So, all right, so we'll stick on this topic. Uh, it's a big one. So the 4 million pounds that you raise, this is the biggest equity crowdfunding round ever? Yeah, yeah. And it didn't take us long to get to the 2 million mark. I think we did that overnight. And it was, yeah, we were, you know, we were really humbled by it. And um, it was really exciting to, you know, we always say the business is founded by parents. And that it was great to after that raise and round to say we're not only founded by parents, but we're now funded by parents too, funded by our community. Mm -hmm. And I think there it's just, you know, these, these, all our customers who help are helping us grow and now um, our investors and you know it's just it was remarkable and when we asked them why you know why 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 did you guys take part I think first is they saw it as a cause you know um, we knew that parents loved our product we've always uh, had great app reviews strong net MPS net for, only, for, for, yeah, for those net, listeners that don't know what that is yeah. Um, and, um, they love their product and it's cause we help their children and we help them. We give them a tool to help their children to learn about money. They're seeing positive behavior change. They were very confident with the product and I think they wanted it to exist and believed it, it should exist. Second, I think, um, a lot of people saw the investment case. Yep. Now it wasn't that we had a community of people giving us big ticket sizes of not that everybody's writing you a check for 10 or 50,000 or 100,000 pounds. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of our customers were giving us 500, 1,000 pounds, 100 pounds. And it's because they want the company to exist. This is just an unbelievable case study on the power of the crowd. When you guys, you mentioned 2 million in 24 hours, 2 million pounds in, in 24 hours. What do you think 
I mean, for, for those that are interested in the boxes that you guys checked in terms of executing a successful crowdfunding campaign, what do you think you guys did well? Yeah, I think when, um, I think it works really well for companies who have a good investor base, their own investor base, a very good customer base, our consumer businesses, businesses that people really you know understand and are using themselves, and um, and then you know have worked hard to just put that pitch together in a in a succinct way to get the market involved. As a case study, I would also, for any listeners interested, I'd go check out a company called BrewDog, which is a um, brewery in the UK. They make fantastic IPAs, and they have raised a lot of money through equity crowdfunding over the years. If you go on their website, you can read about it. You could pledge today and, and, and give them give them some cash in exchange for uh, some shares in their company. And they've been really, really aggressive and raised um, quite a lot of money. You, they should hire you as their PR rep and yeah. give you kickback. Was their first crowdfunding campaign pre-2016? Like, were you guys watching them? Uh, what was the inspiration for No, I can't. No, I can't remember. Um, our inspiration was there was some success cases. So the platform we used was called Crowdcube, and Crowdcube did a great job just advertising themselves and getting traction from a retail investment community. So they built up their own community, and there was a few um, there was a few like good early raises. But one that stands out was a company called uh, another beer company called. Camden Hells Logger, and they raised, I can't remember the exact amount, but it was it was somewhere over a million pounds. And as we obviously started doing our due diligence and thinking about it, you know, the case was starting to build up around how many companies were actually raising like, you know, seven figure sums. Um, and then there was no secret sauce or special recipe. I think we just approached it the way we operate the business was just being, you know, detailed and put a lot of effort and care into it um, and did what we thought made sense. Um, we also had the benefit of managing a community for years. So maybe that helped a little bit as well. So shifting gears to the financial education stuff, I was reading some stats. There's some psychology at play here with respect to money. So interesting statistic from your site, about one in three children worry about money, some as early as eight years old. And further research suggests not only do children worry about money, they're also aware of their parents' financial worries. Yet, obviously, very taboo uh, for many people to talk about it. What do you think's going on here? And how are you guys and the entire sector really as a whole uh, helping this to change? Yeah, I mean, look, this is something we obviously um, really care about. Those those stats are correct. Um, there's also famous you know, now famous and often referred to research um, out of Cambridge University, which looked at how children build their habits and attitudes towards money. And it found that as young as six, you've started to form your habits around money and that your parents have the biggest influence over those habits. I think there's a few different ways as a whole society is looking at it. I think on one level, you have in the UK, they introduce financial education into the national curriculum. North America, uh, the US is a bit behind that. I think Canada is close to where the UK is, and it's an actual learning outcome. So teachers are uh, scrambling to get the tools and the resource to start teaching 
kids about money in a in in a way that makes sense to them from a young age. I think then um, obviously the government should and could do uh, a lot to raise awareness for the issue and help the education system get the tools in into the public school sector to to make it effective. But ultimately, I think that the biggest role is in the home. And just like learning to read or ride a bike or do math, you if, if the school is teaching these things, those values need to continue in the home and parents need to pick up where the school left off. So for instance, like a parent can do a lot of things around the house, like from a young age, you can have your child pick out the cereal to buy at the grocery store. On the way home, you can give your child the grocery bill and ask them to go through all the items with all the numbers and come up with a total. Your teenage kids maybe are the ones responsible for figuring out which broadband or subscription services the household should have and how to get the best deal. And and then we obviously believe, and there's a lot of research to back it up, and our customers obviously believe this, that giving kids a regular allowance whether that is fully 100% chore based or it's you know a set amount every week is a very important thing and talking to your kids about the expectation of how that money should be used and where it should, what things it should go towards is an, is is really important and then the other thing is obviously everyone as a parent your goal ultimately is to have your kids fly the nest and be independent young people and young adults in the world do you think there's such a thing as too early to teach kids about it um, our customers don't think so. You know, the community of parents that we deal with don't think so. The research doesn't think so. I, as a parent, don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, with my own children, even as young as three, I set up some kind of reward system for them because everywhere you go, they're asking for stuff. And <laughs> you don't want it to be a negative source of, you know, tension in the family or you know, you kind of want to help your kids. And so even in my own, you know, with my own kids, maybe it's because of what I do for a living, but, you know, set up a noodle jar and um, they could add pasta, dry pasta to that jar every day. And it takes them about three months to fill it. And they, they get to put pasta in the jar when they cooperate and do things Hmm. that um, is expected of them in the household. And then at the end, when we fill that jar, they get to go to the store and within reason buy the toy that they want. And what we hear from our own community when that translates into giving them a regular allowance and using a tool like GoHenry is the second they give their kids their own card to spend uh, online, whether that's on Xbox or buying stuff on Amazon or in the real world, being responsible for their their food after school, um, going to the mall on the weekend. The conversation goes from mom and dad, can I have, to mom and dad, this is how much I think is left on my GoHenry card. This is, and, and they start making their own choices. And I think that, that's what it's about. Um, often, yeah, it's, that's such yeah. an interesting you're shifting the control really from the parent to the child. And I think that's hugely valuable, really. I mean, we're, we're, this is with respect to money, but just as a parent myself, giving your child the autonomy to make their own decisions, whether it's about money or something else, is very powerful. Yeah, we we think so. And in order to do it well, you have to also give parents some 
peace of mind and oversight into that journey. And we, we've worked with our community to build out the product to make sure it's, you know, really tailored and flexible to each individual child and that it can be used by any type of family. This is something that is meant um, for the real world. It's supposed to be practical. It's light touch. But it's really meaningful. So what has been the biggest challenge grinding up against the business? Has it been this awareness piece that you're talking about? Has it been just the general education and sort of outing this whole idea of top talking about money and money management in an open forum? Largely, it's about being really, really good operators. And then in terms of the market, I think a large portion of the market, you know, prospects who come to us, get the idea, it's not a deeply considered purchase, and it's, it's then an awareness job and making them aware of the service that exists and doing that in a way that feels um, authentic. So in, in terms of the economics and the business model, you guys use trial incentives to capture market share and users, I guess, then default after the trial into a recurring billing cycle. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the business model is or B2C business and um, subscription business. Subscription is great because it's easy for the customer. And, um, you know, you're in a world now where, like, if you're, we're talking about families and you look at your bill every month, I mean, you've probably got five, six subscription services on your, your, your debit card every month or credit card. So they're used to this. And, it, you know, we certainly don't see ourselves as a prepaid business, but what happened before we launched was if you wanted a prepaid card, as an example, it was layered with fees. You know, you had an application fee, you had transaction fees, you had, um, in some cases, you know, dormant fees. And it was just really complex. So for us, I think the reason it worked was we had mobile phones. Technology was there for us to be able to, you know, effectively build a service like we offer. Do that through a mobile app. You had a lot of go-to-market channels that existed that were self-serve, and subscription was just a really nice way to make it feel really easy for people to get in. And the free incentive is just the way, you know, if you believe in your product, um, I think it's a pretty classic approach to get people to try before they pay. And and the actual fees per month is it? Around three, four bucks a month. Yeah, so it's three ninety nine in in the U.S. It's three ninety nine per month per child. Got it. Um, okay, so you're operating in the U.S. Uh, this is new for you guys. Initially launched in the U.K., uh, you grew throughout the U.K. and Europe uh, expanded into the U.S. What has been your experience? I mean, you're originally Canadian. You're from here. You spent some time in the UK, you launched the business there, uh, you now come back to North America and you're expanding the operation here. What are the differences that you see in terms of the markets? Uh, I know that's a loaded question, but what's been your experience? I think that, interestingly enough, the UK and US consumer is is pretty similar. Obviously, in America, they are a more consumer-oriented society, but in terms of, the, for us, the the problem we're solving and the need that exists is global. It is, you know, in both markets, the UK and the US, a large portion of the market receives a regular allowance. The nice thing about the US, um, for us at least, 
is that they're a bit behind the UK. Um, so one of the, in, in terms of payment infrastructure and adoption of, of, of the newest technology. Hmm. So things like contactless in the UK, um, you know, when you're living in at least central London, um, you can live cashless every day. It's, I mean, you can literally leave your house with a mobile phone and transact all day long, get on the tube, get on a bus, purchase a sandwich, buy a coffee, whatever you need to. Everything is contactless and mobile, you know, the the kind of pays, accepting the pays, Samsung and Apple. The U.S. is just getting into chip and pin technology. Um, they are heavy on credit card usage. Um, contactless and Apple Pay hasn't taken off as much. So there's some, you know, some differences in terms of the, co- the consumer behavior, but that doesn't really impact us because we're, we're offering a service that can work any way uh, a young person wants to be able to transact. We, we cater to that. And what we've done is just taken the latest and greatest state of the art technology, you know, chip based technology and some of the other elements of what we learned in the UK where we were a bit further ahead and we've just brought that to the US. So we're offering, you know, a safer and and better product than maybe you you get from just a standard bank or, or credit union. Do you feel like there's um a level of corporate rebranding that has to happen as a European company expanding into North America? I think Americans are quite find British society pretty endearing. So um, I don't I don't think they um, I don't I don't think I think if anything it's a strength that we were founded in Britain and made in Britain um, to an American public. But Americans are you know just, they just want you to know that you're also committed to them and their market. But you know we've done a good job of just we believe we're a global brand serving again a global need. So it's you know the markets aren't that much different. And uh, in terms of regulation, it's it's by and large pretty similar as well. So that's been good. Look, not a lot of consumer internet companies are born in the UK and you know reach huge scale and fame in the US. Mm-hmm. It's mostly coming the other way from the US into the UK. Um, things are changing. Uh, there are there are amazing tech scenes in the UK, Europe uh, as 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 well as you know, places like Toronto and Montreal. So um, I think we have a, it's good timing for a British company to go to America. And, um, you know, we're, we're in a, a company of few, but, you know, all right now it's all very encouraging. And um, we're just excited to be able to start fulfilling our mission of, you know, getting to millions and millions of kids learning about money. And America helps us do that. Spotify was founded in Sweden, I think. Spotify um, is before yeah. they came over to North America. Um, they leading, were in a, they're, they're leading yeah. music streaming now. Uh, largely, Facebook probably responsible for uh, how big that company's uh, become, but but definitely founded uh, overseas in Sweden. So so that's one Look, of the stories. They, it's one of the, yeah, and Spotify is in a way it's one of those things of you never know when you're having good luck because I think um, when they started they were working obviously they had to work with all the American labels mm-hmm. and their intention I think was to go after the American market but they couldn't get the rights 
um, and the licenses to any of the music because the music industry in America was still really wary about how what their future looked like um, in a digital world. And what happened was actually they gave them the licenses to UK and Europe ahead of America because they they didn't, you know, it was a secondary market to them. And um, I think that was interesting because that allowed them to kind of build up some real critical mass um, and and hone their uh, hone their engine before they brought it to to a big big market like America. And it was, it was I just you know I remember showing up in the UK and someone asked me I'm a big music fan and asked me about Spotify and I'd never heard of it and it was just such a delight to use but. Um, yeah, and and they're from Sweden, so they have access to some incredible talent, um, creative talent, engineering talent, um, and uh, for such a small country, they're you know they really do produce some great companies. Yeah, and I think Daniel Eck, the founder, um, I mean, he was a pretty big name in the tech scene, sort of pre-Spotify. He had a couple of successful tech exits, so definitely there's a lot of talent out there. Uh, quickly, I want to ask you about the security concerns. So identity management, uh, protection of personal information is probably very critical to your model. We really focus on building off the best technology. From a technology point of view, we are bank level security, you know, and that means we have um, 256 bit encryption like any other bank has. Um, we monitor the site 24 seven. It's just a part of operating the business and a part we take very seriously. So, um, so funny. I just, I just thought of another, uh, sort of random tech success story from overseas Stripe payments. Uh, I think Stripe was think, founded yeah. in Ireland, was it? Or I, th- I think it's I Ireland. Don't, yeah. I, I don't know much. I, they're Irish. The founders are Irish and they're really bright, young, bright kids. But I think they might have actually raised all their money in the valley and set up the company in the valley before they even scaled. Yeah, I, don't, I don't really I know. That, yeah. that lucrative deal with Shopify to become their default payment processor. Yeah. Uh, very lucrative for, for both parties. Yeah. Um, Look, you you might know more, and um, I think that's a int- you know you could run a whole episode on yeah. finding your, your traction channel. You know, Spotify had great relationship with Facebook and they also they also grew a lot which I don't talk about much but through tie-ups with the telcos right That's so right when is sort of the right time to look for a CEO uh, you Dean your co-founder of, of this business um, the business grows you then bring on Alex what was your experience in terms of bringing him on and, and do you think it was the right time and what lessons could you share every business is different there's a lot of startups that have uh, the founder as the CEO and that founder is able to grow into the role and scale the business. For us, we just went to the market and wanted someone to help us, want someone to help us with um, international expansion. And um, we had a really you know, specific thing and we found a person who um, was a professional in scaling consumer internet businesses and had done it many, many, many times. And also, um, he's, you know, he's, he's, we, we like to say he's, um, he's also, he's an owner and operator. So Alex came into the business, he invested his money into the business and it wasn't just, you know, a hired gig for him. So, um, is that typical by the way? 
I actually, I don't know. For Alex, it was important. For us, it was important. I would say that any founder or anyone running a business, you know, at the end of the day, if, if um, you feel you're working to a common goal and, a, and you have a specific problem and the existing team isn't great at solving that problem or can do better by bringing in outside help, that's a decent time to think about it. But um, each business just has to look at, I don't think there's a right and wrong time for a startup to hire a professional CEO. I think like every business is pretty much unique. And while there are fundamentals we all focus on and frameworks we all think about to be good operators and leverage, you know, use to become good operators, really just um, listen to the signals around you and be specific about the problems you're trying to solve and bring in the best people to do it. And you'll probably be successful. Has it been a challenge to be physically away from the office? So he's primarily over there. You're primarily uh, in North America now. Has the dynamic changed at all? Um, the dynamic, of course, is going to change. Uh, I think I have the benefit of knowing the business in the UK very, very well, knowing all the people in the business very, very well, and having worked with them for a long time. If I was new um, to the business and I was a hire, you know, an outside person hired in to set up the US, I think it would be pretty challenging. For me, I, I think the remote working um, in a way, being remote and being, you know, the new market and this, you know, we're more of a startup in the U.S. The U.K. is pretty established business. Um, we're careful to not put cost ahead of revenue. We're kind of going to grow through learning. It's largely upon me and the team here to set up our workflows and operate the business in the way that makes sense for us to make sure that the connection is strong. Um, I travel to the U.K. quite a bit speak to um, the management team daily, um, fellow co-founder Louise, our COO. Okay, so so the first entrepreneurial venture, it's grown um, significantly over the, the course of the last six years. It's a, it's a great story. If you were to, actually a two-part question. First, um, what is the next chapter for GoHenry? And second, what is what would be the next chapter for you, do you think, uh, post-GoHenry? Would it be another... Um, fintech startup or would it be something else? So the first question, that's, um, the next chapter for Go Henry is really to make strong inroads in, into the US. I mean, we're so early in our launch there and um, we're really excited about the US and we're going to put all our energy to, to making that work. For me personally, I honestly don't think past Go Henry. I know that sounds strange, but I'm just really focused uh, personally on making this business continue to work. And um, I really care a lot about fulfilling our mission. And I don't think it'll ever be fulfilled, but I really am working to us becoming um, a truly household family famous brand, family friendly famous brand. And I think life after go henry will work itself out um when i get there i would hope um obviously now i got the bug um i like building businesses i like the both the challenge i like the creativity involved in building a business um i like the pressure so i would hope 
you know, this isn't my last business and, and that uh, I would get myself involved in other projects I care about that balance both big commercial market opportunities and building good businesses with doing something good for people. Um, and if you could bring those two things together, you're pretty much, uh, it's pretty, for me, it's a recipe of staying, you know, pretty engaged and committed and satisfied with my work life. Uh, well, we're coming full circle. So I think you're um, alluding to what you said at the very beginning about tying uh, those very two important pieces of life together, money and, and children. Uh, the mission's amazing. We have a lot of listeners in Canada. Go Henry's not here yet. But for U.S. listeners, where do you want to point people to? Yeah, so um, check out the app stores, Google Play, iTunes, and visit our website at www.gohenrycard.com. And um, you can sign up in a few minutes and drop me a line because we always love to chat to the customers and hear from you. So um, and thank you, Adam, for, um, for uh, taking the time to talk about our, our mission and our business. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.